You're listening to the Bravehearted Voices podcast. In this podcast, we feature sermons that deeply stir us toward Jesus Christ and living fully for His glory. As you listen to this powerful collection of communicators from yesteryear, it is our desire that you be stirred to live a life fully given to Jesus Christ and discover a Christianity that actually works. In the book of John, that is, Gospel according to St. John, third chapter, beginning with verse 22, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, that's verse 22 of chapter 3 of John, and there he tarried with them and baptized, and over across the page it tells us, at least across the page in my Bible, tells us, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, that is, he was heading it, but they were doing the actual baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Enon, near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there rose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John, and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing, except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now generally suppose those are the last words of John, that is the last thing here. And then the other John, John the beloved who wrote this book and was quoting John the Baptist, now carries it on. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. Now verse 30 is the one that I have in mind tonight. He, Jesus, must increase, and I, John, must decrease. Now, both Jesus and John were baptizing. John was baptizing in person, and Jesus was baptizing through his disciples who did, as I said, the actual baptizing. And in their journey, these two popular preachers, in their journey, they came near to each other, moving across the country with disciples. They came near to each other. But John was bringing his colorful ministry to a close, for he was a colorful character, this John the Baptist. But it wasn't to last much longer now, and Jesus was getting his ministry well underway. And each one was fulfilling his divine commission. 
John the Baptist was doing what God had sent him to do, and our Lord Jesus Christ was doing what his father had sent him to do. And there wasn't any rivalry between the two men. There was only rivalry, as somebody said, in the minds of their disciples. Jealousy arose among the followers of each. Neither Jesus nor John was jealous of the other, but the disciples, their followers, were jealous. And I might turn aside here long enough to say that the most, one of the most wicked things in the world is religious jealousy. Because it is sin going into the holy place. Sin that sins outside is bad enough, but sin that enters the holy sanctuary and is jealous of what the Holy Ghost is doing is exceedingly wicked. It's like fighting over the crown that belongs to our Lord. The unanswerable question, or questions, questions that cannot and have never been satisfactorily answered, are these. If God is doing a work, why should I be jealous? And if God is not doing a work, why should I be jealous? Mr. X is preaching, and apparently a work is being done. Now, if God is doing that work, why should I be jealous of Mr. X, God doing the work? And if God isn't doing the work, then why should I be jealous of Mr. X? For he's just wait, just waiting for wood, hay, and stubble to, to, to the fire to burn up his, his work. Now, there isn't any excuse for religious jealousy among God's people. But it was here, all right. And they disputed over baptism, over cleansing. And it appeared to be a sincere question, but it was inspired by other motives, hidden motives, rivalry, bad feeling. They were disguised as a doctrinal problem. Uh, out of many years of experience, I can say this, that it is very rarely that two God-hungry Christians disagree. They disagree in those areas of their minds where they are not God-hungry. Two God-hungry men are very likely to agree. And what passes for zeal very often, zeal for the Lord, is only zeal for personal opinion. I wish that I could take back now all that I had said defending my personal opinion. One of my boys said about me, He's a good friend, and he'd say it to my face. But he said it to a friend of mine, an elder in our church. Well, he said, Dad, is all right. But he'd be a lot greater if he could ever see any opinion except his own. And uh, I believe, I agree with him. I agree with him, but I don't want to divide the brethren over my personal opinion. Uh, religious disputes over trifles rarely have an honest origin. We are disputing over something else instead of over what matters. And so they brought this to John, and they said, John, that man that you talked about is baptizing over there, and many people are going to him. What about it? And there was trouble and dispute over, over baptism. But John, wise old John, lifted their question to its proper level. Our Lord himself had a marvelous way of taking a question that had been asked and uh, not answering it at all. 
but beginning a little talk that by the time it was finished, they wish they hadn't asked it. And uh, John here lifted their question to its proper level. He saw through their pettiness. He saw how little they were. And he gently, that it was gently for John, because he wasn't known for his gentleness. John gently reproved them. He said, your problem is not baptism. Your problem is not practice. It is not modes of baptism, how much water to use, or under what circumstances it should be used. You're jealous. He said, your problem is your far-off relation to God. That's your problem. Don't you know, he said, that no man can receive anything except it be given him from heaven? And if God is in this, why should you be jealous of me? Because God is doing this. And if God isn't doing it, it'll all go down the drain at last. And I told you, he said, that I'm not the Christ. I told you that I don't claim to be, I'm a servant. I am, he said, but the friend of the bridegroom, that is the best man we would say now. You're jealous of me as though I were the bridegroom. He said, I never claim to be. I am but one of the bridal party, one of the parties I'll stand up with the bridegroom. Then he said these words, he, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Now, this was John's last public utterance, and I believe this is the secret of the life of the man John. Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. And here he condensed into one sentence the secrets of his own greatness, and the secrets of the greatness of all the great that have ever lived in the world. Unwittingly, for I don't John knew he was saying this, uh, that it was so important and so vast and all-encompassing, he simply was telling the, his disciples how things stood, but this became and stands today the declaration of the secret of the greatness of the man John and the greatness of every great prophet that has ever lived and the great the great of every saint that has ever lived, and every revivalist and mystic and reformer and uh, prayer warrior down the years, this is it. Uh, Jesus must increase, and I, his servant, must decrease. Now, this is the secret voice. John uttered these words, and then very shortly after that, he was beheaded. But this voice sounds here now. And it sounds over this modern Christianity that we are a part of, this evangelicalism, this full gospelism, this Bibleism that we're a part of. It sounds, I hear that voice, and uh, I'm concerned with that voice. When I say I hear a voice, please don't misunderstand me. I, I don't hear voices. If I, don't, I don't need the man with the white jacket yet. I don't mean that, but I mean that out of the Word of God and by the Holy Ghost and deep in my conscience, I hear the voice of God and I hear this voice of John, this secret voice sounding over this modern vanity fair, this modern vanity fair. Some of you may be disappointed in me already. You will say, why can't that man open his mouth without finding fault with modern, the modern church and religious people? I can't for the reason that uh, the, the modern church ought to straighten out and get right with God and repent and clean up. And uh, when they do that, then I'll stop my talk. 
uh, urgently ten times on attendance, they tell me, and uh, when somebody came about the third or fourth time and said, Mr. Spurgeon, why don't you preach on something else? He said, when you repent, I'll change my topic. And uh, I would say to you that when the Church of Christ gets right, then I'll be the first one to go along and clap my little patties and say, thank God, we're a wonderful bunch. But as it stands now, I see too much wrong with the church. I see too much wrong with her leaders. I see too much wrong with the popular figures that move up and down the world uh, determining what kind of Christians we're going to be over the next 50 years at the Lord's Ferry. Well, in this modern religious vanity fair, where men promote themselves without shame, they promote themselves and they have no fear at all. Somebody told me years ago, Mr. Chosen, why don't you buy a red tie and get a, get a, what do they call, publicity man. You'd make it. Well, uh, I would wear a red tie if I got it part of it. And as for making it, I'm not concerned with making it. And for needing a publicity man, I don't. The Holy Ghost will go before me. He said he would and make my enemies turn their back on me. And I've seen the backs of a great many necks in my day. And, uh, I, I, <laughs> I've never tossed her off, but once or twice, and I was sorry when I did. But this modern vanity fair, men promote themselves, and John said, uh, I decree it. But they say, uh, I am the great one. And uh, in this modern vanity fair, language is used of men, yesterday unknown. Language so extravagant, so exorbitant, so exaggerated as to be preposterous and funny, if it is not downright lying. And uh, the awful part about that is, not that somebody creeps in unawares and does that, but we have woven it into the pattern of our religious life, so we expect it. A fellow who won't do it doesn't get very far. And uh, we hear a voice, a voice saying, Jesus must increase, and I, his servant, must decrease. And we say, is this Christianity or is that other thing? Which is Christianity? Which is it here? Is it this uh, modern, slap-happy, jingle-bell Christianity where popular fellows promote themselves, or is it this strange man saying, I must get littler and littler, while Jesus gets bigger and bigger? Which is Christianity? Which is it? Which is the faith of our fathers? We get up Sunday morning and sing, Faith of our fathers living still. Which is the faith of our fathers? This thing that we see about it that doesn't hesitate to lie and boast and exaggerate uh, where publicity is worshipped like a god, and where success is coveted and courted like a soiled courtesan? Uh, is this the Christianity of our fathers, or, or is it something else? I think it's something else. And uh, the secret dreams of youth in our day. You know, I believe in having examples and following them. Uh, the Bible tells us where to do that. That we are to take for uh, an example the prophets that preached in the name of the Lord. And Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. And he said certain churches uh, followed certain other churches and imitated them. You can't help it. We're human. We're down here. And we naturally follow examples and models. Uh, now, brethren, here's what worries me. That the models for the average young Christian today are not the same. They're not the saints of old, they're, they're likely to be uh, some popular figure. And the average young girl would like to get into pictures if she could. If she can't, she'll settle for just uh, being a good, humble Christian. 
But if she could get into pictures, she'd throw the cost down and run. Ninety-nine percent of them would do it, I think. I'm quite sure. And, uh, you know, I'd just like to stretch my hidebound muscles a little bit here and uh, say that I've had one little bellyful of, uh, of this business that I'm hearing up and down the country of these people who give up so much to serve the Lord. I've never met anybody yet that gave anything up to serve the Lord. The average preacher thinks he has, but the average preacher, if he wasn't preaching, he'd starve plumb to death, you know. He couldn't do anything else. He couldn't. We used to have a girl, I hope she never hears this tape, but we used to have a girl in our church years ago who would used to get up and testify before she sang that she gave up opera to, to follow the Lord. Gave up opera to follow the Lord? They wouldn't have used her to sweep off the stage. But she actually went along believing, and I didn't even have the courage to go up to her and knuckle her the way she should have been knuckled. So I let her leave the church and move away from the city, and now I've lost track of her, and she thinks she gave up the offer to sing for the Lord. Firstly, she couldn't sing. I knew a man who gave up a chain of 12 grocery stores to preach. And some friends that knew the whole circumstance told me privately that he'd been bankrupt in every one of the twelve. So he gave up an awful lot to serve the Lord, didn't he? Huh? <laughs> Here, God help us. You know what God's looking for? He's looking for some people that are dead downright honest. Just candid to the point of being tough. You know, just as frank and, and plain and transparent as can be. The Lord loves that kind of people. If he can get transparent people, people that won't kid themselves and, and, and uh, fool themselves and pretend and live behind a screen all the time, that won't raise their feathers to make them look bigger than they are, that won't do anything to seem to be what they're not. You know, Lord Francis Lord Bacon wrote an essay on simulation and dissimulation. Sounds terribly formidable, but uh, he explained that Simulation was pretending to be what you were not, and dissimulation was pretending not to be what you were. So there's simulation and dissimulation, and I find it everywhere up and down the country. Simulating and dissimulating, pretending to be what I'm not, and pretending not to be what I am, and then carry our big Schofield Bible under one arm, and days of heaven upon earth and the other, and have the alliance witness in the middle. And uh, here we go down the sidewalk. We're saints. We're saints. Saints, my eyes. We're not saints, my brethren, because we're not honest. Well, here's this voice. I'm hearing it. I'm hearing a voice saying, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Now, that voice sounds very strange, incredibly strange in this day in which we live. It sounds like a voice from the past or like a voice from the future or like a voice out of eternity without any past or future. It sounds like a voice from God. Sounds like a voice out of eternity. A disembodied voice fronting incarnation, wanting to find somebody into which it can get. I decrease, he increases. I get less and less, he gets more and more. I'm smaller and smaller and he's larger and larger. Let us watch out that we don't build the sepulchres of our fathers and prove that we are the sons of those that flew the prophets. 
So what else did we don't make so much over A.B. Simpson that we forget that A.B. Simpson got where he was by virtue of saying Jesus increases and I decrease. He gets larger and I get smaller. We write his life, we sing his hymns, but we forget what it cost him. We're trying to be like him without paying the price, he paid. But here's the voice searching through the world for some people that will come out from the crowd and say, all right, this is, this is, I'm, I'm going this way. Whatever others say and whatever my closest pals say, whatever my classmates in Bible college say, whatever my church back home says, I take this path. Jesus increases and I decrease. From here on tonight, he gets bigger and bigger and I get smaller and smaller. Where's the rare soul that can hear it? The rare soul. But I tell you that your spiritual life, the depth of it, the intensity of it, the quality of it, the everlastingness of it will depend upon where you stand on this. Depend upon whom you're promoting. Promoting self or promoting Christ. But somebody says that Mr. Tozer, I promote Christ and I am sacrificing and giving up and Paul writes, do you know that men can sacrifice and give up to promote themselves? you know that? Many a young fellow who is determined to be a great engineer or a great physicist or a great politician, right tonight, right tonight, is living on crumbs and laying up his money and wearing the old suit and sacrificing like a saint in order that he might fulfill his heart's ambition to be a great physicist or a great engineer or a great politician. The fact that you're sacrificing doesn't mean a thing in all the world. Some of you young preachers, you say, well, Brother told you can't say that I'm not little. Nobody ever heard of me, and I'm in a little place where I'm living on practically nothing. But if you could get a bigger place, you'd take it. And you're hoping that by that serving at apprenticeship to poverty, finally you'll bounce up into the limelight, and everybody will say, behold, he comes. And uh, you'll be big. Now, let's watch that, because it's perfectly possible to put a whole lot of sacrifice, wear ourselves out, and injure our health with nothing higher before our vision than the promotion of our own interests. But John said, I get smaller and smaller. He had no interest to promote. But I tell you that the depth of your spiritual life will depend upon how you take this tonight. And the depth and intensity of your spiritual life and the quality of it. You say, aren't all Christians alike? Now, you know better than to ask that question. You didn't ask it, but I assumed you did. No, certainly not all Christians are alike. Not all stars, stars differ from star and glory, and so shall it be at the resurrection of Christ. And that have the dead, when Christ raises the dead. Why will star differ from star? Man differs from man, woman from woman, in size and intensity and magnitude at the resurrection, because they differed down here. They will at the resurrection because they did while they walked on the earth. And who are the ones of first magnitude? The ones that said, he increases and I decrease. And who are they that say, why am I so small and forgotten? Because while you lived, they lived on earth, they said, I increase, but he decreased. The fruit of your Christian life, you know, fruit, 
fruit grows on trees and fruit grows on Christians. And there's good fruit and poor fruit and, and mixed up wormy fruit and spotty fruit. And the best fruit grows on the tree that is most committed to God. And it'll depend upon whether you can say this or not. He decreases, he increases and I decrease. And the result of your labors in your conscious union with Christ. Now there's a, there's a union with Christ that is judicial. That's a judicial union. And you have that union when you're born anew. You receive of the nature of God into your life, and the root of the matter is in you. There's a deposit made. And you're united with Christ judicially. But it's possible to be united with Christ judicially and not be united with him experientially. And it's the experiential union that has made the great saints that have moved the world, that have written our great hymns and open mission fields and have done the great work and have stood as examples and models for Christians for all centuries. They've always been those who would not stop with judicial Christianity. Our Bible teachers give us judicial Christianity. They say, why, judicially, legally, in the mind of God, you're one with Jesus. Sure, that is true. Thank God by infinite grace. But it's the will of God that I should press on to be united with him in warmth of personal knowledge of communion, a union that leads to communion, a sweet fellowship, and a harmony with God that is wonderful, that makes this earth a heaven, and that brings the heaven yonder a lot closer. It's God's will, but I'm telling you the secret tonight. He must increase and I must decrease. Many centuries ago, some century or two before Martin Luther, there lived a man in Germany, he was a great preacher there, by the name of Johannes Toller. Occasionally we get some of his stuff into the Alliance Witness. I don't know if you ever read it or not, but it's there for you if you want to. Uh, peace, we'll take off a small piece and put it in, because he was richer in the honey of the Holy Ghost almost than any man who's writing to go on to read. Well, how did he get that way? Well, it was like this. This is the story. I'll make it brief. He was a preacher in, oh, I've forgotten the name of the city now. I'm sorry, but a German city. And he was preacher in a great cathedral there. He had a great church and was widely known as one of the great eloquent preachers in Germany. I say again, several hundred years, two hundred years, I think, before Luther. And uh, one day a man came down from a country, a man by the name of Nicholas. He was a farmer. He came in from the hinterland. And he went to hear the great preacher. Everybody did. That went by. And uh, he heard him preach. And after the service, he went down front. And he said, uh, Doctor, my sir, he said, you, that was good preaching. He said, you know, I'm going to be staying in your city for a while. And uh, I'd like to have you preach a sermon on the deeper life. On how I can get rid of the old flesh and uh, become united in the Holy Ghost with Jesus and have what they talk about, know what Augustine and the saints have talked about. He said, I'd like to have you preach a sermon on on the crucified life, the deeper life. Well, he said, I'll do that all right. In fact, I'll do it next Sunday. So he got himself a sermon. And it had 24 points. I've read it, and it's a good sermon. And if somebody had sent me that, I'd put it in the weekly witness. And... uh it was a good sermon, and uh, there's a lot of good truth in it. And after the sermon had been preached, uh, the farmer, persistent fellow, went down to the front again, and he said, My sir, he said, that was a good sermon. 
Thank you. He said, uh, good point, sir. Thank you. But he said, would you mind if I said something to you about it? No, he said, go ahead. He said, bluntly, it's this. You preach the deeper life, but you don't have it. I could tell by your preaching that you were only preaching. You've never experienced it. Well, how, of course, could have done what most of us would have done? He could have leaned back on his ministerial dignity. And uh, coughed a few times and said, I have an engagement. But instead of that, instead of that, here's what he did. He said, well, Brother Nicholas, if you have anything that I don't have, I want. And he said, would you teach me? Oh, the farmer said, teach you, Mike. Why, he said, you, the great doctor. And me, a farmer from up in the hills. Why, said I, wouldn't think of it. He said, but if I want you to. Well, but he said, Master, all I know is what the Holy Ghost has taught me. And he said, I couldn't teach a man of your learning. He said, yes, you could. He said, what you have is what I want. Now, he said, I'll pay your expenses and keep you here, and you come and talk with me. And tell me how I can enter in where you are. Well, he said, you don't have to pay my expenses. I am all right that way. He said, but I'll pay. So he, they began having daily talks and daily prayer. And uh, Nicholas went to work on the great orator, who knew the deeper life, you know, and could write articles on it, and had his magazines probably, too. He went to work on it, and he chopped him down, chopped him down. And he'd leave him for a day or two for the wounds to heal, and come back the next day and chop him down some more. And he chopped him down to a, finally, the man got to a place where he said, Brother Nicholas, he said, I'm not fit to preach. Said, I didn't know it. He said, I'm a carnal man. Said, I, I've been proud of my preaching, proud of my great church, proud of my reputation. He said, this is awful. He said, I'm not fit to preach. Well, Nicholas said, don't. He said, stick around let somebody else preach and you just listen to me. So, they had had it out. It went a long time. The news got out that Master Tower had lost his mind, had gone crazy over religion. But they didn't pay much attention to that, and they went on praying, and Tower went on dying. Finally, one day, Tower came to, Mike, uh, to, to Nicholas and said, Brother Nicholas, I think God met me. He said, I think he's met me. He said, I believe now I can preach again. So they announced that Tower would preach, and he spoke it again. And of course, the place was packed to the gills and crammed around the windows to hear this man that had been such a great preacher, but it suddenly quit because he'd gotten fanatical on religion. He wanted to hear what he'd say. Well, he got up, and uh, he read his text, and then he started to talk and broke down and cried. He couldn't talk. He cleared his throat and shook his head and got control of himself and said, beloved children, and then bawled some more. And uh, then he shook his head and said, my beloved friends, and then cried some more. Pretty soon he gave up in despair and left the pulpit. And uh, he went backstage and uh, met Nicholas there. Good old Nicholas. God bless the man who has a Nicholas to keep him in line. Uh, he met Nicholas, man. He said, oh, I disgraced myself, Nicholas. No, Nicholas said, there was just one little nerve that wasn't cut in your pride. And he said, now God let you publicly cut it today. He said, you've made a goose of yourself publicly. Now, he said, it took that. He said, you wanted to die the nice way behind the scenes. But he said, God wants you to die in public. So he said, I think it's okay now from here on. So the next Sunday, they announced a young student from the seminary, and he got up and preached and preached. 
sermon, you know, like they do. And uh, when he was finished, he made an announcement. He said, I am asked to announce the pastor of this church, Dr. Tower, will preach here next Sunday. But if next last Sunday's performance is any promise of what next Sunday's will be, I promise you nothing. I've been asked to make the announcement. And he stalked his feet off of the platform, and Brother Tower got ready. And that next Sunday, he got up and preached. I've read that sermon, and brother, it's like drinking nectar from the bees of Hydra. It's from the text, uh, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye forth to me. Thank God he never heard of eschatology. If he'd have heard of eschatology, you know, would have gotten mixed up in the social Bible margin, he never would have preached that sermon. He didn't know about all that you and I know about the bridegroom and the bride and the, the, the lamp and the oil and the five virgins and the other five virgins. He didn't know enough of the body. He just loved God with heart. And so he took this. The Jesus Christ is coming out toward my heart. Run out to me. And he preached the sermon. Well, such a sermon. It was sweeter than honey. And uh, while he was preaching, somebody fainted away dead in the aisle. Imagine that. Fainted away dead in the aisle. And somebody shouted, Cease, cease preaching. Or, or, or this, these people will go to heaven. He said, well, it's all right. I say, God, the bridegroom wants to take him to heaven ahead of time. It's all right with me, but nevertheless, I'd be sick. So he stopped preaching. And this mission went backstage, whatever they call that, you know, in the ritualistic churches. Somebody came back all gray faced, you know, and said, oh, pastor, pastor, you've dismissed the 40 people kicked his old were in He said, don't let that worry. I'll handle them. So he went down and led them to the Lord. One after the other. And he went out from there to be one of Germany's greatest gospel preachers and laid the founder a groundwork and foundation for Luther and the rest that were to follow. He isn't usually heard of. Luther is the man that got in the public eye, but Howard was the man historically that helped prepare the sea soil for the seed of Luther later. But now you see, don't you what I mean? He must increase. But I decree. There aren't very many people that are willing to hear that voice. Most of us would have quit about the third week and we'd have paid Nicholas's fare back home and would have taken it by faith. And would have said, I take it by faith and got up and brushed off the sawdust off our knees and uh, would have gone out smiling a smile that never belonged there at all but was put on. And uh, yes, the Lord has met me. And we'd have gone right back to the same old death that we came out of. But uh, Tower had sense enough to keep on till he was dead, altogether dead. My friend uh, Booth and I were talking about a certain preacher that preaches everybody dead and leaves them there. Now, I don't like to preach them dead and leave them there. And uh, the difference between Dr. Simpson and a lot of these death preachers was that he preached them out of the grave again into the glory. And uh, you died with Christ, but you rose with him. And it was the rising with him, the living with him, and the living in him, and the victory that he talked about all the time. So uh, I like to talk about the victory that comes, too. But remember, there isn't any Easter until there's been a good Friday. Remember that. Nobody rises till he dies. But we want to jump the gun and rise right now. But we won't go down the way Collar went, and the way Simpson went, and the way the rest of the things went. We want the victory, but we won't take the dime. Well, if I were to ask tonight, how many of you want to come down here and receive something? 
I'm sure that there would be a great number come. Because God's children are always picking up whatever they can, you know, go to one camp meeting and another, getting blessed here and getting blessed there and picking up something here, always getting something but never getting rid of anything. Our difficulties right there. We want to receive before we have emptied ourselves. You can't fill a, a, a full vessel. You have to empty it first. So if I were to say, how many want to come and get? You'd come and get. But tonight I want to say how many want to come and empty yourself. I wonder how many it will be. Usually it's not very many. But if we tonight take, set our faith and keep on saying, my motto is decrease, decrease, decrease. And at the same time my motto for him is increase, increase, increase. Oh friends, you'll never know the Lord very well until you have died to your property and yourself and your future and uh, all the little things we hold dear. In our home, we had a, a six sons, 12 years. And then time went on and we figured that we were, we'd settle for those six boys. We wanted a girl, but was not much use. So after nine years had gone by, and the youngest nine years old, along came a girl, our only girl. She's twenty next week. And, uh, oh, brother, was she sweet and dear to me. I was forty-two years old, and I needed a little girl terribly bad. For those roughhouse gorillas, you know, that ran the place, right? Those smelly gym shoes and... All the rest hanging around, you know, and I needed, I needed something, and God sent her along, and then about that time I had to go through a spiritual experience, and that spiritual experience led me to have to surrender in a manner that I hadn't known before, and it came to Becky, Rebecca May, we called her, and we shortened it to Becky to this day, and she had brown, curly hair, so curly you couldn't find a straight one. And she was as pretty as a picture, and in spite of that, she looked, I said, like me. And, uh, and she was gentle and feminine, and I'd go, go and see the little feminine things hanging up, you know, I could have jumped over the uh, building with delight just to see her little clothes hanging around, you know, little, little tiny baby girl clothes. Well, I loved her more than I knew, and, uh, I had to go to God and die for that. And I did. And I gave her up. I gave Becky up. And I gave her up so completely that if the Lord had taken her home and she died, I wouldn't have complained. I wouldn't. I testified to that one time. And of all people, a missionary came to me and said, Mr. Tozer, I'd be afraid to testify like that. Aren't you afraid? And I said, no, sister. I'm not afraid for this reason. I have put Becky in the hands that have the nail print in them. I have put her in the hands that loved her enough to die. And love never does wrong to its object. She's safe now, and she never was safe before. As long as I held her so close that she was my darling and sweetheart, and a part of me, she wasn't safe. But when I died to her and turned her over to those nail-pierced hands, she's been safe ever since. 
And if her plans go through, she'll be a missionary. Two years in Nyack, a couple more years to go, and then she hopes to go to the field. Brethren, I've just said it tonight. You've got to decrease and decrease and decrease. And he increases and increases, and when he increases, he is like the sun that rises, and the path of the just that follows him is goes brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. Now, let's get straight about something. I'm called an evangelist here for this year because I speak in the evening. But I haven't any worry whatsoever about how many people come to the altar. I don't care if nobody comes from now on to next Sunday night. It doesn't make any difference to me. I have no reputation to make and none to lose. So, I want to be perfectly candid, and I want us to be friends, and I want to talk for my Lord Jesus, and then I want you to respond as though you were hearing from him. And I'll stand by and watch and be glad. And if you don't respond, I'll be sorry, because he wants you to respond. If you do respond, I'll be glad because he wants you to respond. But if you do, you're not coming for me. You're coming for him. Are you willing this evening to take your motto, I decrease, he increases, and live it? Ask God to help you to get it inside of it and live that motto. Are you willing? Would you like to have a little encounter with Jesus tonight? If you were here in person, you could see the faces you're seeing mine. What would you say to him? What would be the first thing you'd say? What would be the one thing you'd say? Come and say it tonight. What would be that one thing if, if Jesus were to walk in here wearing the old John and you recognize him. You knew that in some serious way he'd come for a moment back to earth. And he was holding out his what would you say to him? Come and say that to him tonight. He's just as much here and as certainly here as if you saw him. You say to him tonight, on your knees, what you'd say if you could look right into his face and say, will you? In the book of John, that is, Gospel according to St. John, third chapter, beginning with verse 22, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. That's verse 22 of chapter 3 of John. And there he tarried with them, and baptized. And over across the page, it tells us, at least across the page in my Bible, tells us, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, that is, he was heading it, but they were doing the actual baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Enon, near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there rose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom 
which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now generally suppose those were the last words of John, that is the last thing here. And then the other John, John the beloved who wrote this book and was quoting John the Baptist, now carries it on. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. Now verse 30 is the one that I have in mind tonight. He, Jesus, must increase. And I, John, must decrease. Now both Jesus and John were baptizing. John was baptizing in person and Jesus was baptizing through his disciples who did, as I said, the actual baptizing. And in their journeying, these two popular preachers, in their journeying they came near to each other, moving across the country with disciples. They came near to each other. Now John was bringing his colorful ministry to a close, for he was a colorful character, this John the Baptist. But it wasn't to last much longer now, and Jesus was getting his ministry well underway. And each one was fulfilling his divine commission. John the Baptist was doing what God had sent him to do, and our Lord Jesus Christ was doing what his father had sent him to do. And there wasn't any rivalry between the two men. There was only rivalry, as somebody said, in the minds of their disciples. Jealousy arose among the followers of each. Neither Jesus nor John was jealous of the other, but the disciples, their followers, were jealous. Now I might turn aside here long enough to say that the most, one of the most wicked things in the world is religious jealousy. Bravehearted Voices is brought to you by the Ministry of Deeper Christian in partnership with Ellerslie Discipleship. Our passion is to help you grow spiritually by providing Christ-centered resources, discipleship, and training in the Word of God and the victorious life of Christ. Our agenda is to bring back the stuff of old, the sort of Christianity that is lived out with the gusto of heaven and actually and practically works. For more, visit BraveheartedVoices.com.